be strong and courageous. Don't you find it interesting? Just in the first chapter, God tells him several times. I counted one time, you know, through the story of Joshua, how many times God had to tell him. I forgot what the answer was. But even at the end of chapter 1, his own people tell him what? We'll follow you. Just be strong and courageous. So uh, it's a reminder to me that God calls us not because we're prepared or not because we have all the talents or not because we're strong or particularly courageous, but because he wants to use us for his purposes. So uh, Joshua's a great reminder of that for me. Uh, let's pray about that. Father, we thank you as we open your word that uh, your word is God-breathed and useful to uh, equip us and train us and prepare us for righteousness. So, Father, I pray that that would be true of us today as we look to conclude this book of Acts. We pray that you would enlighten us and train us, rebuke us where we're wrong, point us in the right direction, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, actually, it was 19 months ago in uh, February of, two, what year would that be, 2015, when you started this journey with uh, Pastor Brian on the study of the books of Acts. And he called the study Missio Dei, which is in Latin, the mission of God. And Brian went on to explain in that first lesson way back in February, a year and a half ago, that the mission of God was to spread the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the world and to do so by empowering his people through the Holy Spirit so they could be his witnesses, so that we could be his witnesses. And over 41 lessons, over all 28 chapters of Acts, we've seen God do exactly that. We've learned that this book is a detailed uh, historical account of the roughly first 32 years of the Christian church. And we've watched Christianity expand from a few Jewish believers in Judea to include Gentile believers across the Middle East, across Asia Minor, in, Minor, into Europe. And when Acts chapter 28 ends, Paul is in Rome sharing the gospel with the Jews and the believers there. Two weeks ago, we actually completed uh, chapter 28, Acts 28, Paul's arrival in Rome to stand trial. But the book has a really strange ending. In fact, it's like the book has no ending at all. The verses of chapter 28 end with Paul living in his own rented house. And though he was under house arrest, he was allowed to freely preach the kingdom of God to all who came to see him. But there's no mention of his trial, which is the very reason Paul went to Rome in the first place, perhaps because there may have not been a formal trial. After all, there were no valid charges, there were no credible witnesses, both of which were required to have a formal trial in Rome. It's highly likely, actually, based on the biblical evidence that Paul eventually left Rome and continued his traveling evangelism for another four or five years before being rearrested, brought back to Rome a second time, this time in a real prison, eventually to be killed by Nero. There's no mention of any of that in the book of Acts. For some reason, Paul, I mean, Luke just decided to stop writing. I was reminded in a sermon a few weeks ago that Acts is not a biography of Paul. 
Brian told us, in fact, 19 months ago that the book of Acts was a story about the mission of God to spread the gospel throughout the world. And until Christ comes, until Christ returns, there's no ending to that story. It's going on and on still today. So Luke apparently just found a convenient place to stop. It reminds me of when our daughter Michelle was in a dance class here in Lake Jackson many years ago with Miss Linda Newman. And they would, um, the little girls would stumble and trip across the stage for a few minutes. And then you could hear Miss Newman tell them, find your ending, find your ending. And at the end of the, when the music stopped, they all struck this incredible pose, you know. And no matter how bad they looked, how unchoreographed they looked, how unorganized they looked, stumbling through their dance routine, when they found their ending, it looked like they actually knew what they were doing. So after stumbling and tripping with you through the last eight chapters of Acts over the last few months, I need to find my ending. So I went back and started reading the book of Acts over again, and it struck me how often the apostles and the early church leaders talked about their mission in terms of teaching and preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. So that's what I feel led to discuss with you today, as well as actually the next couple of months, next couple of weeks. Sorry, Josh. The kingdom of God. So as we wrap up our study, I think it'd be valuable for all of us to understand what the kingdom of God really means. So in order to find our ending, let's look at Acts and how it deals with the kingdom of God. So if you'll grab your Bibles with me, the book of the kingdom of God actually serves as bookends of the, of the book of Acts. So look with me at Acts chapter 1 verse 3. It says, to these he also, these being his apostles, he says, to these he also presented himself alive. This is Jesus. After his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So when Jesus came back for 40 days, he spent with his apostles and he taught them about the kingdom of God. Now flip over to the very end of Acts, chapter 28. Look at verse 30. This is Paul in Rome. And verse 30 says, And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So it's the subject at the very beginning of Acts. It's the subject at the very end of Acts. In fact, it's mentioned... uh, by Jesus, the, gospel, the kingdom of God, over a hundred times in the Gospels. Most of the time by Jesus himself. So it's not surprising that when Jesus came back after his resurrection, he spent the time discussing that with his disciples. In fact, the kingdom of God was the basis for his trial and conviction before the Roman governor Pilate. Now, on the other hand, it's a little bit surprising that Christ would talk to them about that because although he had talked about it his entire ministry 
it was apparent that his own apostles didn't fully understand it. But not only is the kingdom of God the subject at the beginning of Acts but and the end of Acts, it's a recurring theme throughout the book of Acts. So let's look at the, in Acts chapter 2. We won't look at a specific scripture, but Acts chapter 2 is the story of Peter's first sermon right after Pentecost. And Peter bases his sermon on the book of the prophet Joel, which is a short Old Testament book of only three chapters that deals exclusively with the coming kingdom of God. And it's in this book that Joel writes, in, those, in the last days, God would pour forth his spirit on all mankind. So Peter uses that text to remind his listeners about the kingdom of God. And Peter also used a lot of Old Testament, a lot of other Old Testament passages as well. He used passages from 2 Samuel and from Psalms. And this use of Old Testament passages becomes the pattern for preaching in Acts. You've seen it as you went through these 28 chapters. After all, the first New Testament books weren't written. Books like James or the Gospel of Matthew and Mark weren't even written until about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So I think it's reasonable to assume that when Jesus met with his apostles in the upper, uh, for those 40 days... He explained to them the kingdom of God using the Old Testament scriptures. That's what he did with the visitors, the travelers on the road to Emmaus, didn't he? When he met those two men the morning of the first Easter, Luke 24 says, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And that's what Peter did when he gave his first sermon right after Pentecost. Flip ahead a few chapters to chapter 8. This is Philip when he went to evangelize in Samaria. Chapter 8, verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women. And flip forward to chapter 14, verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city, this is Paul on his first missionary journey, they had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So they were teaching that entrance to the kingdom of God was going to come with some hardships on their, on their, in their particular case. Go forward again to chapter 19 of Acts, 19 verse 8. This is just a few of the references. There's actually many more. This is Paul in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, speaking to the Jews, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And back to the last chapter of of Acts, Acts 28, verse 23. When Paul arrives in Rome three days later, he invites the Jewish leaders to come talk with him. And in verse 23, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. So we see the 
kingdom of God is the subject at the beginning of Acts, at the end of Acts, and all the way through the book of Acts. So Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God. His apostles and disciples and leaders of the early church talked a lot about the kingdom of God. And we talk a lot about the kingdom of God. We sing songs about the kingdom of God. We pray about the kingdom of God, do we not? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. At our house, we even play games about the kingdom of God. I don't know how this game got started, but this is two of our grandsons who have on some plastic full armor of God. And what do boys do when they're holding the sword of the Spirit? They fight. Except Grammy is only killed if they yell out in their loudest voice possible, Kingdom of God! At which point Grammy falls dead. I have no idea how that game got started. It's certainly not biblical in nature. But it's safe to say this is not what the Bible means about the kingdom of God. So what does it mean? Actually, it can be a little confusing when you think about it. Some people say it means heaven. In fact, Matthew used the term kingdom of heaven in lieu of the kingdom of God in his gospel. Some would say it's the Christian church. Some would say that it's something internal. It's something in our heart. It's something spiritual. Some would say it's the future reign of Christ when he returns to earth, the millennial kingdom. So over the next few lessons, we're going to explore the kingdom of God, and I thought we would do so by looking at three things that define all kingdoms. Those three things being the king, which we'll talk about this week. Secondly, the king's realm. And thirdly, the king's citizens. So we'll look at the king this week, then we'll look at his realm and his citizens when we get into this again in October. So here's, here's the outline that we're going to look at today about the king of the kingdom of God. We're going to look at the expected king of the Jews. We're going to look at the rejected king of the Jews. And we're going to look at the resurrected king of all. So let's start with the expected king of the Jews. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when John the Baptist declared boldly, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What were the Jewish people expecting? What kind of king was coming to rule the kingdom of God? You know, actually, for many years, the Hebrew people were a nation that were led by God himself. It was God himself who rescued their ancestors from slavery in Egypt and sustained them through the desert and brought them into the promised land. But eventually, they rejected the kingship of God, and they demanded an earthly king like all the other nations. And at least to some degree, God disciplined them by giving them exactly what they wanted. As a parent, have you ever disciplined your children by giving them exactly what they wanted? My father tells about a story many, many years ago where he and his brothers were fighting over a jar of grape jelly. So his mother set him down and gave him each a full jar of grape jelly and told him, start eating. 
and forced them all to eat a full jar of grape jelly. My dad still cannot stand grape jelly 70 years later. But sometimes God disciplines us by giving us what we ask for. And so God gave them kings. And for a short time, the Jews were actually the most powerful nation on the earth under the leadership of King David and King Solomon. And though these kings were sinners who fell well short of the glory of God like all of us do, the Jews of Paul's day remembered their reigns as the golden days of Israel, the good old days. And maybe they were the most powerful kings that followed, even even though following them, the reigns of these two became increasingly wicked and distant from God. But incredibly, in spite of their rebellion and their lack of faith, God made a promise to them. He promised to send the Hebrew people a Messiah which is the Hebrew word for the Greek word Christ, the anointed one. He was going to send them a very special king who was eventually coming to restore the kingdom of Israel in a marvelous way. And I would summarize it as this Messiah came to save them from their enemies, to establish righteousness, and to bring an everlasting peace. So let's look at a few passages from the Old Testament that summarize what we just talked about. This is Numbers 24, verse 17. This is Balaam, the pagan prophet, actually. Balaam's fourth oracle from God to the Hebrews as they prepared to enter the promised land. This is what God told Balaam to say. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. And the passage goes on, if you keep reading, to describe God's judgment on Israel's other enemies as well, the Edomites, the Amalekites, the Midianites. This is one passage, actually, in the short book of Joel. It's even more explicit. All three chapters deal with the the great day of God's judgment on the nations surrounding Israel and her restoration. The Old Testament is full of passages that talk about the Messiah saving Israel from her enemies. But they also have passages that deal with the Messiah establishing righteousness. This is from Jeremiah chapter 23. In verse 5, Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. So the Messiah was going to come to save them from their enemies. He was going to come to establish righteousness. He was also coming to bring everlasting peace. One of the more familiar passages about this in the Old Testament is from Isaiah chapter 9. has a familiar sound as you read it. Starting in verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Peace, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. You see, God was going to send a king to the Hebrews 
that would fulfill their heart's desire. A perfect king. And how is a perfect king going to be possible? Well, we get a glimpse of it actually in this passage because this king was somehow going to be a descendant of their greatest king, King David, and God. And I'm pretty sure most, if not all of the Jews, didn't understand how both could be true. Just that both were promised somehow. As an example, uh, the apostle Nathaniel on his very first day as an apostle with Jesus Christ, when asked who he was, Nathaniel replied to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are king of Israel. You were both. That's what he knew. That's what he believed. Now, we only looked at three Old Testament passages, but this promised Messiah actually saturated the pages of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. And in doing so, God made the promise of this coming king so compelling that Paul referred to him several times in the book of Acts as the hope of Israel. This was he was, this coming king was, Israel's hope. So as the Jewish people suffered through exile in Babylon, as they suffered near annihilation during the reign of the Persians, as they saw their religion adulterated during the reign of the Persians, as they lived under the crushing and heavy-handed oppression of the Romans, their hope in the coming Messiah grew grander and stronger, and more urgent. And they clung to the promise of this God King who would save them from their enemies and establish righteousness and bring everlasting peace. That's the King of the kingdom of God that the Jews expected. So what happened when their long-awaited King finally came? They rejected him. When the promised Messiah came, the only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, with very few exceptions, the Jews of his day didn't recognize him because he didn't match what they were hoping for. No royal celebration at his birth. Only a few lowly shepherds coming to a stable to bow before him. There was no army of highly trained soldiers to command. Only a few fishermen and a tax collector of all things. There were no state dinners to entertain dignitaries from foreign countries. Only meals with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners of every make. There was no coronation for him to formally receive his crown from his father, only a crown of thorns pressed on his head by the mocking Roman soldiers. There was no long live the king, long live the king shouts from his loyal followers, just shouts to crucify him, crucify him. In the eyes of almost everyone who saw him, there was nothing kingly about this man who claimed to be the Messiah, their promised king. Even his own disciples couldn't put all the pieces together. They believed Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, but 
his crucifixion wasn't in the script. At least not the script that they had in mind. Even though Jesus had warned them repeatedly about his coming death and his rejection. Which brings us all the way back to Acts chapter 1. What was it that Jesus taught his apostles during the kingdom, about the kingdom of God during the 40 days following his resurrection? Well, we don't know directly from the text of Acts chapter 1 because God didn't give us Jesus' lesson plan or his sermon notes. But God did give us very clear indications in what we read in the rest of Acts and actually the rest of the New Testament. Look with, look with me back at Acts chapter 1 at verse number 6. Acts 1 verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying... Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So in other words, when are you going to do what the Messiah is supposed to do, Jesus? You didn't do it the first time around. Now that you're resurrected, is this the time? Is this the time you're going to do the Messiah thing? And look at Jesus' answer in verses 7 and 8. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, don't worry about the restoration of Israel. God's got that well in control, and when God's ready, it'll happen. Don't worry about that. And then he tells them in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. He basically said he hadn't failed. He basically said, I came to do what I came to do, or I did what I came to do. That's why on the cross he could say, it's finished, it's all done. And then he implies, or he tells the disciples, in fact, what I did was actually good news for all mankind. And after I empower you with the Holy Spirit, I want you to go out and tell the entire world what I did. I want you to go tell the whole world the good news about the Messiah. And what was that good news? What was the gospel that they preached, the message that they brought to the world? Well, when we see the kingdom of God preached throughout the book of Acts, it's almost always based on another messianic promise. A promise that must have been confusing to the Jews and perhaps one that they tended to ignore. I think it's almost certainly one of the passages that Jesus reviews, reviewed with his confused apostles during those 40 days. And that promise is that the Messiah, the perfect king, was also anointed by God to suffer as a servant and as a sacrifice for his people. There's actually a lot of Old Testaments about this promise as well. Probably the most clear is from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. I tried to pick a few verses to read for you, but I couldn't, so we're going to read the whole chapter. <laughs> it's too hard to break it out. 
Let me read Isaiah 53 just to remind you. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. And all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a gift, a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. And was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That's the gospel, isn't it? The Son of God, though sinless, willingly went to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter to suffer God's wrath as a guilt offering for us who, like sheep, have gone astray and turned to our own way. I'm pretty sure Jesus reminded his apostles in Acts chapter 1 that this is exactly what had just happened. And in doing so, he had actually perfectly fulfilled the messianic promises spiritually. hope you can see this chart, but the things he came to do, the Messiah was coming to save Israel from their enemies, establish righteousness, and bring everlasting peace. And on Jesus' first coming, he did exactly that, spiritually. He saved them, he did. Not from their physical enemies, but from themselves, from the consequences of their own sin. And he did establish righteousness 
He lived a perfect, righteous life, and he actually imparted his righteousness to those who believed. So he did establish righteousness. And did he bring peace? Absolutely. He reconciled them to God when they were God's enemies. When they were in the bullseye of God's wrath, Christ brought peace. That's true. At some point, Jesus is going to come back and fulfill those same promises physically. But what Jesus wanted his apostles to know, and not only to know, but to go out and explain in the remotest parts of the earth, was that Jesus had already come as the Messiah. And they didn't have to wait for his physical return because he had already saved them. And he had already established their righteousness and he had already brought them peace. And all they had to do was accept it. And so they started first with the Jews and just like Paul did when he got to Rome in Acts 28... Their message was that the kingdom of God, that the Jews had been taught about their entire lives, the hope that sustained them through all the hard times and persecution was actually the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus of Nazareth, their long-awaited Messiah, had come. So the king of the kingdom of God was actually the rejected of the Jews. But it didn't take the early church leaders very long to realize that Jesus was not just the king of the Jews. He was the king of all. Now, the Jews understood that the Messiah was going to be a blessing to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. In fact, that's why in the Gospel of Luke... Remember the old man, Simeon? I'm assuming he was an old man. Does, the, does it say he was an old man? I don't even remember. But uh, I think he was an old man. In the temple, when he sees the infant Jesus through the Holy Spirit, he knows this is the Messiah. And what does he call him? He calls him a light for the Gentiles, a blessing for the Gentile people. But it was really clear through the first roughly one-third of the book of Acts that the early Jewish Christians understood that the Gentiles had to first become Jews before they could participate in the blessings of their Messiah. In other words, they had to experience Jesus Christ just the way we did as Jews. But all that changed dramatically, didn't it, when the resurrected Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And he told Paul that he was being given the privilege to take the gospel directly to the Gentiles. And it was further reinforced in the company of Peter when God sent the Holy Spirit to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, in Acts chapter 10. And God was making it very clear to those early Christian leaders that Jesus Christ, the rejected king of the Jews, was actually the long-expected king of the Jews, but more than that, he was also the king of the Gentiles. He was the king of all. He was our king. So we could take that chart we just looked at and replace all the theirs and theys with ours and us's, 
Because he saved us from ourselves, did he not? From the consequence of our sin. And he gave us his righteousness. And he reconciled us to God when we were God's enemies. So just look at this chart for a minute. Let me propose a couple questions for us. Which is most important? The Messiah's spiritual fulfillment of these prophecies or the eventual physical fulfillment of these prophecies. To me, it's a really easy question. It's not even close, in my opinion, because when Jesus came and died on the cross to reconcile us to God and to be held accountable for my sins, he did what was of ultimate importance to me. He came and did what was of ultimate importance, of the highest priority to all of us. We were studying the book of Revelation recently with the boys that live across the street from us at Miracle Farms, and I asked them this question, and one of the guys said very practically, well, if he didn't come to do the first one, when he came the second time, there wouldn't be many people around. He's exactly right, isn't he? He came the first time to build up the kingdom of God. So the Jews wanted a king that would make their physical lives better and easier and more peaceful, perhaps more prosperous. That's what they wanted. But God instead gave them what they needed. And all they had to do was accept it. God offers all mankind what we need. And all we have to do is accept it. Now, it seemed to me like the Jews were so focused on the physical fulfillment of these promises that they failed to see, they failed to recognize the spiritual fulfillment. And I think there's a lesson there for us as well. What is it that occupies our attention? The physical or the spiritual? Maybe we'll get more specific. What causes us the most concern about ourselves? Our physical well-being or our spiritual well-being? What causes us to pray most fervently? When a loved one is physically ill or when a loved one is spiritually ill? Or in biblical terms, when a loved one is spiritually dead? And what do we think about this morning? Putting on the appropriate clothes for church? Or putting on the full armor of God to protect us from the attacks of Satan, which were certainly to come our way on Sunday mornings. So what would our king say about this? He actually said something about it. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, he told his followers, Don't worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what we will wear for clothing. 
For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. I mean, what does he tell him? But seek first the kingdom of God and all righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So we've been talking about the king of the kingdom of God, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who is the expected and the rejected king of the Jews and the resurrected king of all. But I want to be real clear when I say he is the resurrected king of all. Because he's not just the king of those who accept him as savior and those who commit their lives to him as Lord. He is the king of all, whether we want him to be the king or not. He's the king of everyone in this room. He's the king of everyone in the room with the children. He's the king of everyone you will see today. Jesus Christ is the king of all. And there's a passage in Philippians chapter 2 that addresses this as well. Let's read it. Starting in verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which also, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That passage is magnificent, isn't it? When we think about what Jesus did, but it's also very clear and very blunt. Every single person will eventually bow their knee before the resurrected King of all. Every single person will confess that Jesus is Lord, everyone. So the question for mankind is really not whether we will accept the fact that Jesus is Savior and Lord, is it? It's when. And actually, Jesus had a preference about when, did he not? That's why Jesus told his followers to go out and be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the remotest part of the earth so that we might know the King of all now as our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your word. I thank you for coming as our King. Because, Father, I confess that if uh, it was up to me, I would be my own king. 
If it was up to me, I would have rejected you more harshly than the Jews did. And yet you came while I was your enemy to rescue me, and I thank you, Father. I thank you on behalf of all of us here who bow at your feet as our king. And it's in your name, in the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name that we pray. Amen.